The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Indeed, it does, John. Thank you very much. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. And here's what's on tap tonight. A salty day for the chips. NVIDIA crunched more than 4% ahead of earnings. The rest of the sector also suffering. So is this the start of the thundering herd exiting? One of the most crowded trades on the street. We'll debate that one for you. Plus, China rebound. Are things on the mainland so bad, they're about to get good? We'll go inside Beijing's push to revive their beaten down markets. And later, a collection of collectors. How a VC heavyweight and a veteran TV producer are trying to juice the memorabilia market they will join us to explain how this nearly half a trillion dollar business can double in the next 10 years. In from Melissa Lee, I'm Tyler Matheson. Glad you could be with us tonight. Coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ. On the desk tonight, Dan Nathan, Guy Anami, and Stuart Kaiser, head of equity trading and strategy, trading strategy at Citi. And we start with a chipwreck on Wall Street. Shares of NVIDIA sinking more than 4% the day before its highly anticipated earnings report. The stock seeing its worst day, by the way, since October. And it wasn't the only semi-stock sliding today. There you see some others. Supermicro, AMAT, AMD, and the SMH chip ETF all seeing outsized losses. Still, even with today's drop, NVIDIA is up 40% so far this year. But is this the first sign of the air being let out of the tires of the red-hot semi-trade? And could tomorrow's results cause an even bigger pullback? Guy, let's begin with you. This is a, this is a company that has just lit the fire on Wall Street for a long, long time. And that's often the case, the, the kind of situation where if there's a nit to pick in that earnings report, <laughs> it's going to get picked. You've lit the fire under investors for yeah. a long time, too. Tyler, it's great you to have bet. you here. No, you're spot on. You know, it's interesting. The magnitude of the revenue guides higher have slowly been, they've been slowing down, right? They've been getting less and less robust. It's not an indictment. It's just a fact. I mean, a couple quarters ago, they went from $7.8 billion to $11 billion. Obviously, a huge guide. That was last spring, and you saw the subsequent move. The guides are impressive, but not, I don't think, impressive enough. To your point, that was everybody's going to be focused on, I don't think necessarily the quarter, but the guide. And the lead times, apparently, I read over the weekend, are now greatly enhanced. In other words, what was eight or nine months are now down to three or four months. That either means they're getting their act together or... Maybe demand isn't as robust as everybody seems. We're going to find out tomorrow. But to your earlier point, 
That was the first crack in the armor for sure. Yeah, and I Cam. guess the problem, Tyler, is that, you know, street estimates for 2024, the year that we're in right now, okay, so this company's reporting their Q4, their fiscal, um, are expected to be up 70% on earnings and 70% on sales. So the estimates are already really high, yeah, right? It would so be to, high. Yeah, so to Guy's point about these decelerating beats, right, so you have the situation where the buy is it's just so high, right? And so if there's any slippage, and, you know, every morning I wake up to a new story and Guy's talking about maybe there's a demand issue. We've only heard about tight supply. We keep hearing about their biggest customers. We talked about the customer concentration. It's Microsoft, it's Google, it's Amazon, and it's Meta make up more than 40% of NVIDIA's sales. sales, right? right? So, and every morning I wake up to a new story how Microsoft is trying to diversify away from their dependence on NVIDIA. Sooner or later, that will take a bite. And then if there is a demand issue, that's when you actually have a guide lower, not a guide below what estimates are. And so to me, I just think that, listen, Listen, I, I think it sets up as not a great risk reward. I, I, I think it would be better if the stock was just raging into the print. You know, it sold off a little bit. I mean, some of the steam coming out of the trade bit. over yeah. the last couple days is probably um, a decent thing. But if you want a meaningful pullback, then you're basically not going to want to go into the print a little bit depressed. Stuart? Look, I mean, you know, to your point, the, the expectations of fundamentals are high, but I would say the positioning is also extremely bullish. This is one of the most widely owned, you know, stocks on the street. If you look at the options market, implied volatility on calls is higher than on puts, and that's over the next three months, and that's a highly unusual kind of condition to have, you know, going into an earnings print. So. Expectations are high. The positioning is there. The implied move on earnings is more than 10%, which, if it happened, would actually move the S&P almost 50 Whoa. basis points itself. So, you know, I, I think you know, the, the, the bar is quite high going into this print. What, 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 would, what would a stumble by NVIDIA do more broadly to the entire chip sector? Would it just suck them down, a vortex or a black hole or what? I mean, I think I think it, yeah, I think it would have a negative negative knock on to other other stocks in the space. I mean, this is this is the bellwether. This is the hey, I don't know how to pick winners and losers in AI, so I'm just going to own the pipes, and and that's what Nvidia is. So I think if you saw a real weakness there, yeah, it would it would definitely spill over. And then broaden it out to the to the broader market. Is there is there a a, a market effect that could come if there's a slip here? I mean, I think this is one of the largest stocks in the market. Yeah. So, you know, if you you're just going to have a mathematically speaking, yes, you're going to have downside. And I think from a sentiment perspective, it would be a little bit of a, a knock on what we've seen. I mean, semis have really been holding up the market the last couple of months. And if you knock that leg out, then, you know, without a doubt, I think it has to spread. So, so the SMH, Van Eck SMH, we talk about it all the time. Go back. If we can do a longer term chart, you'll see that 160 ish was a huge double top made last July and it sold off from there since then off to the races. So past resistance becomes support. I think we closed at 195. NVIDIA, to Stewart's point, is 25% of that ETF. Think about that. You had mm. Taiwan Semi, Broadcom, and AMD. That's 50% of the ETF is basically four stocks. So is there a chance? I don't think, listen, you're looking for a place to get into these names. God forbid something bad were to happen. And the level in the SMH is around 160. You can do the math on the individual stocks. Yeah, and I think, listen, if there was a, a disappointing guide, you would have all of their customers get hit too, right? Mm-hmm, so the, mm-hmm. the guys who are buying these chips from them or have been buying them and causing these huge upsides. So, like, there will be knock-on effects. Obviously, the semis will be the first. Semi-equipment will be the next. And then they're going to start looking at the hyperscalers, all these companies that have been buying all these things. And I'll just make one 
one other point because you were talking about like broadening out. You know, the other mega trend over the last year has been these GLP ones, and we've seen that you know Eli Lilly and Novo right, Nordisk right. they've gained you know hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars in market cap, and they're similar, very concentrated trades, right? And there's a couple winners that have taken um, a lot of the you know the goods in, in this whole trade, and so I would be worried that if you were to see the semis you know fall over the next few weeks or so, you're going to see some of these other very crowded trades that a lot of folks have just kind of That's anointed. That's a really as interesting a, point. That, that, that they're, they're, you, I do you that every, not, every so often, Every Tyler. so often every, you come up with a good one. But that's really yeah. interesting because they are sort of similar in the, in the, in the market yeah. power that they've, they've delivered, in the gains they've delivered, and in the concentration of the... Yeah, I mean, listen, there haven't been too many other great stories in the stock market over the last, call it, 14 months or so. And obviously, AI and, and, and you know, a lot of the related stories and then these GLP-1s. But, you know, aside from that, I know we're going to talk about it in a little bit. I mean, look at how some of these stocks that literally disappointed pretty dramatically just three or four months ago. This was Walmart was one of them. It had a huge mm-hmm. gap. Mm-hmm. And look at this stock gapping to new all-time highs today on the sort of announcement that most of us, back looking back on our careers, wouldn't expect to see a 5 or 6% gap of a stock. Stock this sort of size on of an Walmart announcement size. like that, of a Walmart, Walmart like that. Yeah. So my, my point is we've seen a lot of euphoric behavior in a very short period of time, really since uh, late October. It's interesting. The Walmart move, Dan's right. I mean, that's a huge move by Walmart standards. It was probably helped by the rotation out of technology into names like yeah, that. Where you, can, you know what, listen, maybe it's rich a little bit compared to itself, Walmart, but at least you can make a justifiable argument in terms of valuation. And the next question, which you were about to ask. I is, was okay, going to ask it. If, if things come out of technology, where are they going to go if they come out of big cap pharma and technology? I'm, and I'm still of the belief that energy is a misunderstood and a an industry that is not representative in terms of where the valuation should be. I still think they're way too cheap. You get a rotation out of tech, you get it into energy. Thoughts? Yeah, look, I think this this goes back to, if you you think early in my career, something like Monsanto, right? This is one of those beat and raise stories with this new innovative technology. If it beats and doesn't raise, that stock tends to get hurt. And I think that's the risk you have around, you know, the lilies of the world and the NVIDIAs of the world. There's just been a series of beat and raises, and that's raised expectations and positioning and kind of creates a, creates some risk around those stocks. So right, let's let's pivot right. a little bit. We'll have more on the chip trade a little bit later in the broadcast. Uh, the options actions on NVIDIA ahead of earnings tomorrow. Stuart uh, referenced it a moment moment ago. Now we move on to Palo Alto Networks. That stock getting crumpled uh, after hours. The uh, company lowering its full year guidance. Shares are now down nearly 20 percent, 19.18 percent. That that is despite beating on the top and bottom lines. But the uh, estimates, so the forecast, that is the guidance. Not so happy there. Kate Rogers has the details. Kate. All about that guidance, Tyler. You said it here. Despite a beat on the top and bottom lines, Palo Alto Networks down nearly 20% in this after-hours trade. The company issued weaker-than-expected guidance for both revenue and billings. It's now guiding to full-year total billings between $10.1 and $10.2 billion. That is lower than its previous guidance of $10.7 and $10.8 billion. It also expects full-year revenue to range between $7.95 to $8 billion. That compares to its prior guidance of $8.15 to $8.2 billion. Guidance for the upcoming quarter also fell short of consensus estimates here. Analysts expecting the company to guide to fiscal third quarter revenue of $2.04 billion, but Palo Alto Networks now expects revenue to range between $1.95 billion and $1.98 billion, so lower there than anticipated. Palo Alto CEO Nikesh Arora will join Jim Cramer on Mad Money tonight, so much more, I am sure, to come. Back over, back All right, over to Kate. you guys. Thanks very much, Kate Rogers. Let's trade Palo Alto, beginning with you. It's a guide. All right, so basically you have three months of gains 
ish, two and a half months, three months of gains from early December have been wiped out like this in terms of the move we've seen in the last 10 minutes, which we say it all the time, stairs up, elevator down. It's the guide. And when you're trading at 53 times next year's numbers, you better continue to beat and raise. Otherwise, you're going to get punished. The thing is, uh, we have seen moves of this magnitude before in PANW. Without question, go back and look. We've had a huge run over the last couple months. Again, I don't think you're looking to figure out where to sell this. I think you're trying to figure out where to get back in. And if you go back and look, we took off from about 283, which is probably about $13 from current levels. That's the level you get back in this name. Yeah, this is not too different of a situation where we were just talking about NVIDIA. So coming into like today, um, you know, expectations were for basically high teens earnings and sales growth for this company. So you disappoint just a little bit. Yeah, how bad is the guy? It didn't look that bad to me, but the stock's down 20%. Just think about that. So the stock is down more than $20 billion in market cap, which is 2x what they're expected to do in billings this year. And, and, and I mean, it's important. That math doesn't really matter, but it's just to think about that on a reaction to where expectations were high. You basically come in line. They're not guiding down really that much. Um, but this is on investors, it's not on the company. I mean, the company came in and they delivered to the guidance that they gave three months ago. Yeah. So part of it is that we're going to see that investors were just out of whack a little bit over the last few months. They were so convinced what the Fed was going to do. They were so convinced about the strength of this economy, and they piled into the things that they thought would work the best. And so I really think that now that we might be in this narrative higher for longer and may not get nearly as many of the cuts as you expected, I think investors are going to have to rejigger a little bit what they're thinking about what they paid for over the last few months in terms of valuation in the stock market. Yeah, you know, I, th- I think that's exactly right. I mean, the, the inflation prints the last couple of weeks have forced people to kind of re-engineer their portfolios a bit. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, for for Palo Alto, you, they picked a bad day to have a bad day, I guess I would also put it. I mean, you know, you know markets are under a bit of pressure. It, it's a bit of a weak situation. People are questioning some of the high consensus trades they had coming into the year. So, I mean, look, if, if, if the S&P was up 150 bips today, you know, maybe they would have performed but you're, better. But you're constructive on stocks right now, right? City is. And- yeah, we are. We're, we're actually quite constructive. We think, you know, the economic backdrop and the earnings backdrop are largely as expected and, and remain very positive. But the fact is this, the, the inflation data, you know, CPI, PPI and average hourly earnings have forced people to, I guess, reintroduce themselves to a risk they thought they had left in the past. And, and when you do that, then you look at your portfolio and maybe the stuff that's out, outperformed by a bunch or the stuff that maybe has a wart on it or a blemish on it in terms of fundamentals are things you might lighten up on it. And it yeah. could be that Palo Alto just kind of stepped into that into that trap, unfortunately. Well, I wonder, yeah, uh, uh, NVIDIA would be another one where you would sort of go, well, God, I've got a triple in this stock. Uh, so maybe I want to take a third of my winnings right now. I mean, yeah, I, I think that to me, the difference with NVIDIA is I think a lot of people view this as a as a must own yeah. know, for the AI theme. So my, my guess would you'd, you'd be have you'd have you know, pretty good support for that stock, you know, assuming that they didn't, you know, you know, re- really, really step in it. Yeah, yeah, this might come as a surprise, though, but there was. Other cycles, tech cycles in the last five or six years where NVIDIA was a must own, whether it was crypto mining, whether it was gaming, AR, VR, data. I mean, the list goes on and on. And and this stock has been that it stock to own. Um, It's just this one now. Take all of those combined, magnify them by 10 or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. We just gained at its highs on Friday $800 billion plus in market cap this year before the company even said anything. (laughs) Okay, so like my my point is, like, I've seen this before. I know how it ends. I don't know if it goes to $2 trillion first and then gets cut in half. It will happen at some point. I mean, like, just take it to the bank. This stock lost 70% from its highs in 2021 because all of those great narratives were wrapped up in one. Investors were really geeked up about all of it. And then it crashed. Yeah. And it could happen again. 
Well, I mean, listen, but this time it's different. I know. I hear it every day on Twitter. Yeah. 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 All right, let's uh, switch to retail right now. We we talked about Walmart a moment ago, and uh, it's jumping 3%. Home Depot e- eking out a gain after fourth quarter results that largely beat the street's expectations. Walmart notably getting a boost from cost-conscious shoppers in the holiday quarter. CEO Doug McMillan sat down earlier with Jim Cramer, and here's what he said about the consumer. People are always looking for value, and so we want to offer that to them across our entire assortment, food, consumables, general merchandise, apparel, everything. And we also want to do it with private brands in addition to brands. And they both matter, and we've done a good job, I think, of keeping our prices in a, in a good range and trying to provide some relief from the inflation that our customers have been experiencing. Oh, you can catch uh, Jim's full interview tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern on Mad Money with Doug McMillan of Walmart. For more on the state of retail, let's bring in former Walmart U.S. CEO Bill Simon. He currently sits on the board of Darden Restaurants and Haynes Brands. Uh, Bill, welcome. Good to have you with us. Hey, good to be with you. How are you? Let's say you're, you're, you're back at uh, Walmart uh, today and uh, you're probably doing high fives. It's a pretty good report. Yeah, you know, really doesn't get a whole lot better than that. Those guys have really done a good job. You know, it's really important. You tell them what you're going to do, and then you actually do it. And then you tell them again, and you do it again. And that's what happens. And I think they've done a good job at that. Is the economy uh, and the consumer setting up to favor just is Walmart in a perfect place for where the consumer is and the economy is today? Well, the company was built for times like this and the economy like this. They've got a Real nice tailwind with food inflation that's been pushing them along for the last couple of years. They're just so able, as Doug mentioned, to deliver on the value proposition uh, that that the customer is looking for right now. And, you know, when half of the uh, customer's disposable income is in food and rent, you're really looking for a break somewhere. And Walmart's able to deliver that. And they've been able to do that for uh, a number of years. What do you make of the Vizio deal? How does it fit? Yeah, it's kind of a head scratcher for me. You know, Walmart's exactly uh, oh for, well, forever on things that they bought that are not retailers. You know, you kind of got, you know, Bonobos and Voodoo and Jet. And it's sort of hard to figure out what they're doing there, especially with the, you know, the competitive brands that they sell. But, uh, you know, I, I don't, it's hard to second guess them. You know, they've really done a great job repositioning themselves. So they must have must have a plan. I know they've said they want to do it to try to build their advertising business, but we'll see. How big, uh, how big a factor going forward will the advertising business be? I wasn't even aware that they were that big in advertising, but, but evidently they are. Well, you know, they're, if you look at their business, it's still retail. It, it's still yeah. just a massive retail operation. And you kind of even look back at the last 10 years. Over the last 10 years, they've added $200 billion in top-line sales, top-line revenue. Um, a lot of that's through third-party uh, online. But they've made a billion dollars less. Their operating income 10 years ago was $28 billion, And this year, last year, they reported $27 billion. Um, so they're in the process of restructuring from that hardcore brick-and-mortar asset-driven retailer into other areas where they think that they can uh, be competitive in the, in, the, in the technology space, and that advertising is important to them for that. Bill, Target's rallied probably 45% since the low, understanding that the stock is still nowhere near its all-time highs. They report on the 5th of March. Can you draw any conclusions for Target from Walmart? You know, I like Target. Brian Cornell is a really good retailer and a good leader as well, and so I think they're well-positioned. 
The biggest difference between Walmart and Target is their food mix. I mean, Target doesn't have the grocery business that Walmart has, and so they don't have the inflationary tailwind pushing uh, customers into their store. They're more general merchandise and apparel and fashion. Those categories are, have been struggling. But that's going to turn around. You know, the inflationary headwinds are easing. Uh, you know, so the push that Walmart's getting is going to abate and people eventually got to buy clothes. Right. And they've, they've been reluctant to do that because of lack of a disposable income. So I think the tide's going to turn for Target, maybe not this quarter, but I think coming up. Hey, Bill, you just mentioned that the Vizio deal is a bit of a head scratcher. You know, we've long opined on this desk when we looked at Amazon, what they've been able to do in advertising. And you just associated the Vizio deal with advertising. It's been an absolute monster. And to me, it would make more sense to look at a much bigger deal like a Pinterest or something like that. If you really want to get into digital ad space and you're doing a half a trillion dollars in sales a year and you have a half a trillion dollar market cap, it seems like stop messing around with some of these smaller deals and really get in there and go after it. I'm just curious how you think about that because you mentioned the jet deal, which a lot of folks said didn't really work, but it did kind of recenter their focus on digital sales when they made that deal. Yeah, look, I'm not going to second guess those guys. They've done a really good job with pretty much everything they've touched recently. So while I might scratch my head, maybe that's why I'm at home and they're still working. All right, Bill, thanks very much. We appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. All right, you bet you. All right, let's trade uh, Walmart. Stu, why don't you uh, take a whack at this one? Yeah, look, I think I'd read it positive, but I would say that these these retailers, Walmart and Target in particular, early on in the sort of inflation cycle, they were canaries in the coal mine for input cost inflation. I think now they're a little bit of a canary in the coal mine in terms of consumers' ability to spend, right? So you could look at this print one of two ways. Either consumer spending remains strong or consumers are being forced to trade down. I'm going to kind of decide to focus on the positive of, of those two things. But, you know, and from our perspective, one of the key reasons we're positive on equity markets is the labor market re remains strong. Wages are pretty solid and consumer and services spending are holding in. So if you're in my seat, you're going to read this report positively as a positive sign. But I could definitely understand some people taking a step back and saying, wait a second, is this evidence that that people are being forced to trade down a little bit? All right. We're going to take a break here. Uh, coming up, we've got more earnings alerts for you. Chairs of Toll Brothers, Caesars and more on the move. After reporting this afternoon, the details and the numbers straight ahead, uh, plus a check on China as stocks continue their winning streak. So is the country's recovery finally, finally starting to materialize? We'll debate that when Fast Money returns. You're watching Fast Money here on CNBC. We'll be right back. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
Welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. We've got an earnings alert on Toll Brothers, a beat on the top and bottom lines for that big home builder. Stock up almost 3% after hours, 2.85%. Diana Olick has the details. Hi, Di. Hey, Ty. Yeah, Toll is still benefiting from the lack of existing home supply and the fact that it is a luxury builder and its buyers aren't as affected by small changes in mortgage rates as the broader market. Now, Toll delivered 1,927 homes at an average price of about $1 million. Net contracts up 40% in units and 42% in dollars compared to last year's first quarter. CEO Doug Geerle said they saw solid demand in Q1, which ended January 31st. And then he said since mid-January, we have seen a marked increase increase in demand coinciding with the start of the spring selling season. Adjusted gross margin in the quarter was 28.9 percent, a 140 basis point increase year over year. They estimate Q2 deliveries of between 24 and 2,500 units, and they raised full year delivery guidance to between 10,000 and 10,500. Now, builders are pulling back on incentives. Analyst Ivy Zellman was just on in the last hour saying what we're seeing is the market accelerating into the spring. She said there might even be a pullback in buying down mortgage rates and that's how the builders did so well last year as rates were rising, Ty. All right, Diana, thanks very much. And we've got uh, some breaking news now on a new entrant to the Dow Industrials. Doesn't happen all that often. Let's go to Kate Rooney for the details. Kate. Hey, Tyler, we have two new Dow components. The first one is Amazon. Amazon is replacing Walgreens, Walgreens Boots Alliance, as a Dow constituent. We've also got Uber. Uber is also joining the Dow, replacing JetBlue, Airways officially two new members of the Dow. You got Amazon and Uber replacing, again, JetBlue and Walgreens. But big news, as you said, we don't see that every day, Ty. Back to you. A new Dow transport, Uber and uh, in for JetBlue among the transports, not the Dow 30. But the, but the Amazon story is the Dow 30, right? Uh, the, the Dow Industrials. Yes, uh, Dow Industrials. You're right. Dow Transports here is Uber. Exactly. So uh, let's see here. Yep. That is correct. And then it says reflecting the evolving nature of the American economy. So a big story here, obviously, Amazon uh, reflecting some of the consumer retail exposure and other areas. Obviously, the AI story has been big. They are the AWS story really has been the growth engine for Amazon. So also reflecting sort of the changing American economy as Amazon is reflecting that's boom in e-commerce and AI as well. Kate, thank you very much. Gentlemen, does I it matter? It, does it matter? So in 1999, to reflect the change in the economy, uh, Microsoft was added to the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And then in February 2008, to reflect the change in the economy here in the U.S., Bank of America was added to the Dow Jones Industrial Average. <laughs> a little bit behind, are you so, saying? No, I'm just saying, saying maybe it's a, big, a, a great timing tool. Maybe it's a timing tool. Yeah. yeah. Well, for our crack staff back in E.C., and they are a crack staff, can pull up an IYT chart, understanding this is obviously an ETF. But look at the potential for a double top here in the IYT. Go back a couple of years, see where we're trading at now. Look at the move that Uber's just had. It's a $160 billion company. And you say to yourself, you know, they say nobody rings a bell at the top. Mm. Well, that actually might be a little ting, ting, ting of a bell towards the top here. So just bookmark today and this Uber news and the IYT. I think it's interesting. Uh, our producer, Sandy Cannell, just pointed out that uh, in 2022, what was it you said? Amazon split 20 for one? So it sort of set the table. You're looking at me. You, uh, Sandy's talking I'm, to you, and you're looking to me. Well, I don't know what to tell you. Let's get Sandy in my ear, and I'll answer the question. I mean, anything's possible. Throw me a life preserver, will you? I mean, does it matter if a stock is – do more people buy a stock because it's in the Dow or not? 
Uh, I mean, it's not a benchmark that we widely track. Yeah. Um, it, it, it gets a lot of attention, I think, particularly from retail investors, so I'm sure people will focus on it. I don't think Amazon is going to be a stock that people haven't heard of or don't own already, right? I mean, this yeah. is a stock that's pretty widely but, owned. So. Yeah, so the question would be, like, do indexers have to buy it because it's in the Dow now? And I would say that many that probably the funds pegged to the Dow. Yeah, They're right. much more SP. That's right. Much more S&P 500. Okay, well, thanks for helping me there. We're trying. Uh, yeah, thank you. I mean, we're breaking, like, what do they call it, the fourth wall? Like, somebody's talking to you in your ear, you're yeah. bringing it up on well, TV. Well, you, yeah. your point is a good me. one. I mean, okay, so 20 to 1, the stock's trading at 150, whatever, $167. It, it is a price-weighted index. It's a price-weighted so, so index. They, they wouldn't put, that's why Berkshire is not in there, right? And, you know, and at so, $2,000 stocks, yeah. I mean, they, they uh, yeah, that would, that would wag the dog, would as the saying goes. All right, there's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. The China trade heats up as stocks overseas notch a sixth day of gains. So can the winning streak continue? Or is this overseas opportunity getting overbought? Plus, what's in your wallet? A credit card mega merger. Capital One scooping up Discover Financial in a $35 billion deal. But will regulators charge into the acquisition? We'll debate. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. Stocks in China rising for the sixth straight session after the country cuts its prime lending rate by a quarter of a point. The CSI 300 now up nearly 10 percent since hitting a five-year low earlier this month. The bigger than expected cut, the largest move ever for the rate. It was introduced in 2019. And it comes just days after China's central bank held interest rates steady as lenders look to stabilize the country's sinking market. So how do you look at this recent move higher, Stu? Uh, it looks like a little bit of desperation, I would say, you know, on policymakers' part. This is the most negative I've seen institutional investors towards China in my entire career. And, you know, tactically, people are worried that they're not allowing selling. So maybe all the selling hasn't been done. Medium term, you have GDP and lending and credit challenges. And long term, you have, you know, population shrinkage and, and diversifying a supply chain. So it's just really hard right now, I think, for investors to find anything other than a short-term tactical trade to kind of hang their hat. Is it investable at all for an American individual investor? Uh, if you have a, if you have a high enough risk tolerance, I mean, <laughs> anything's investable. I mean, the VIX is 100 vol assets. I, 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 yes, I guess it is investable. I would say the most conver- common conversations we've had with investors, though, is where else in Asia to put your equity risk on, whether that's Korea, whether that's Japan, because I think people are just not not confident to catch any sort of falling knife. They've been burned multiple times in the last year trying to time, you know, the rally. And I think see these sort of medium and structural challenges that just make them really uncomfortable being in there. Plus, I don't think they really trust local policymakers to look out for their interests either. So, Nor should they, I suppose, right? I mean, when you have a a government-controlled market like that. They shouldn't trust them at all. But is it it tradable? That's the next question. I mean, investable? Definitely not. But tradable has been a question we've asked on this desk for a few years. And I think... Throw off an FXI chart, which I think closed at 22 and change. 
I mean, that 21 level was a line in the sand. Go back to the financial crisis, go back to October 2022, and then go back to the recent low a couple of weeks ago. And I think you have a pretty tradable bottom here against that 21 level. If you don't like the FXI, Alibaba against 68 and a half, 69. I think that closed at 73 and change today. They reported earnings a few weeks ago. I think you can trade it from the long side. I think you understand your risk, and I think it outweighs the. Uh, I think the reward right now outweighs those risks. Very interesting thought. Yeah, you? I guess with the FXI too is like okay, Alibaba is nine percent of that. Tencent is in there. There's a couple of large banks. Um, again, you know, the government has done a job on a lot of the tech companies already. They're going to support the banks. A, a lot of the easing. So I mean, I think the guy's point, the FXI is probably a decent way to play. You know where your stop is. Just stop it out at those levels. It's probably just below twenty-one ish or so, and you're buying it here um, at 23, and you just keep raising the stop. Yeah. But I think the guy's point, it's tradable. We get kind of filleted a little bit every once in a while when you use that term uninvestable, Tyler, but, yeah. you know, yeah. trade it. Trade it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. see? Go ahead. Go ahead. Easy. You sound, what's that? Easy for you to say. All right, coming up, we're charging into uh, the big credit card merger uh, making headlines today. Capital One inking a deal to acquire Discover Financial, but would a deal actually be a benefit to consumers? We'll break that one down. And could that old baseball card collecting dust in your childhood closet be worth more than you realize? There's a new venture that can help collectors cash in. The people behind that site ahead when Fast Money returns in two. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks kicking off this shortened trading week in the red, uh, though closing well off the lows of the day. The Dow dropping 64 points, notching its first back-to-back daily losses in nearly a month. The S&P down more than half a percent. And the tech-heavy Nasdaq, as we always like to point out, down nearly a full percentage point. And just crossing in the last few minutes, Amazon will replace Walgreens Boots Alliance in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. That becomes effective February 26th. Uber also being added now to the Dow Transports. That will replace uh, the beleaguered JetBlue Airways at $7 a share. Meanwhile, Capital One announcing plans to acquire Discover Financial, an all-stock deal worth about $35 billion. Discover rising more than 12 percent, posting its highest close in nearly two years, while COF pulled back on the news. So will it pay to Discover, or could regulators block this deal? Our Kate Rooney joins us now with the latest. Hi, Kate. Hi, Tyler. Yeah, so this deal combines two of the biggest companies in the credit card space, and it is expected to see some regulatory pushback. Discover and Capital One are positioning this as a way to create more competition in the payment space with a stronger alternative to Visa and MasterCard. Discover is a bank, much like Capital One, but it also runs a card network. And that has been in a distant fourth place behind Visa, MasterCard, and American Express. It has struggled to get other banks to run on its payment rails. Capital One saying that it's going to move some of its card volume onto Discover to help grow that network. As BTIG put it in a note this morning, the deal could face Gale force headwinds from a Washington that is already deeply skeptical of consolidation. However, there are some in Washington who, as he put it, are wary of Visa and MasterCard's duopoly, his words, which suggest that bolstering a a competitor rather would be viewed positively. You've already heard Senator Elizabeth Warren chiming in on social media saying that regulators must block the deal immediately. Still, the efficiencies and scale that this deal might achieve does make it worth it for Capital One to fight those potential 
legal battles. Executives expect to add 25 million cardholders here, 175 billion in purchase volume in the next couple of years, and $1.3 billion in cost savings. Tyler, back over to you. All right, Kate, thank you very much. Gentlemen, any thoughts here on Discover and uh, this deal with uh, Capital One? Well, oh, go ahead, Stu. No, because no, I'm going to read this tweet. Go ahead. I, yeah. I think, you know, from my perspective, if you're able to get a relatively large M&A deal pushed through in the financial space, I think you'd probably view that relatively positive, you know, for the market, because that's just been such a challenge lately to get that done. No, no view on this specific deal, but but just in the industry, being able to get a relatively large deal through, you, you saw, you know, Elizabeth Warren's comments there already pushing back hard on it. So I think that would be a positive. I think in the bank space at large, people have viewed, you know, a potential Trump presidency and the deregulation that might go along. Along with that and, and the potential for more M&A is pretty positive. Not that these things are necessarily related, but it kind of plays into a market narrative that's out there right now. I don't uh, pretend to understand antitrust law at all here, but it, there, there is a, a sort of interesting argument that, well, if, if this helps a third or a fourth player get stronger right. in, a, in, a, in a business that is dominated by two players, isn't that helpful to competition? Should help competition and- lower prices, which flies in the face of Elizabeth Warren, who said today at 114, the merger of Capital One Discover threatens our financial stability. That's pretty, uh, you know, hyperbolic. Reduces competition would increase fees and credit costs for American families. I mean, you can make that argument as well. Personally, I don't see how this goes through, given the headwinds you're going to have just on Capitol Hill. So in our world, there's something called risk arbitrage. And, you know, there's probably a play here for people with temerity to play Discover from the short side, because I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Also, this is almost on the anniversary of the, um, you know, the the banking crisis that we had last year, where we lost a handful Mm -hmm. of some regional Mm -hmm. banks. And, and, you know, Discover and and Capital One were kind of right in the mix, at least of the names that were being punished at the time relative to the large money center banks. So it's just interesting how quickly uh, the narratives can change. And, And I think I'm with Stu. Here, too, it's like, listen, these guys knew what the regulatory headwinds were going to be going into yeah, it. I think it, maybe it's a, a bit of a bet. Both of them arrived at a fact. I don't know what the breakup fee and, and what the disruption to the business is and everything like that. But the bet is that there's a different administration that is going to be a bit more, um, you know, amenable, uh, you know, like open to these sorts of deals. And therefore, you might as well get it on the tape now and see what happens. What's in your wallet? A Discover card. We'll find out. All right. Mm. Coming up, uh, return of the collectors. Uh, Take a look at what may be the uh, most widely recognized baseball card in history. That is the highly prized 1952 Mickey Mantle. That would be L-E, not E-L card. Mantle. Want to place a bid bid on it? Our next guests are launching a platform that could bring together big collectors. That is next. And NVIDIA earnings on deck for tomorrow. But analysts warning of downside pain. We're going to take a look at a strategy that leaves you winning. Fast Money will be back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. A home for collectors. That's what our next guests are hoping to build for what they say is just the beginning of a booming business in memorabilia. They say the market is set to hit a valuation of a trillion dollars by 2033. That's uh, more than a doubling from here. Wheelhouse CEO Brent Montgomery and 776 CEO and Reddit co-founder Alexis Ohanian join us now. Welcome to both of you. Alexis, let me start with you. What is your passion about collectibles and what are you attempting to do here? Build a marketplace or a community or both? First and foremost, a community. And you don't have to look too far in my background to see just how much I <laughs> love collectibles. I have since I was a kid, and it's been a hobby that I rediscovered about six or seven years ago when a buddy of mine said it was starting to come back. 
and I went deep. Video games, cards. I mean, it, it's you, we got a whole roll, whole room, whole office full of this stuff. And the first thing I did naturally was go online to you know social media websites, uh, hit the search. And what I found were so many disparate communities online of collectors, but no one place that was intentionally designed for them to come together, whether they love trading cards or other collectibles. And so we've got a chance now to build it with Mantle. So, uh, Brent, this could be trading cards. You've brought some collectibles. I'm going to ask you to walk us through it in just a moment. This could be trading cards. It could be Pez machines, mm. dispensers. It could be the whole gamut of collectibles. This is creating a community. Uh, again, I want to come back. Is it also a marketplace, a place where you can trade, buy and sell, or what? No, there's plenty of places for that right now. So we wanted to create a spot where both collectors, investors could go that really focused on giving the best user-generated content, which is... Alexis's forte, and then myself, uh, more of a video guy, a storyteller, Pawn Stars, King of Collectibles, and some other shows that have been around collectibles. And really, to your other point, uh, it's it, it starting with sports cards first. It's been a lot of fun to work with Alexis and iterate a little bit in one in one vertical, and then we'll expand it to Pez dispensers, uh, Beanie Babies, music, and so on. So, so. There's this fantasy, I, I think, that, that I'm going to find in my shoebox or in my attic the card, and you take us through a couple of cards, the card that is going to make me a billionaire. And does that happen, or do you have to really be a serious collector to make money in this area? When, when we launched Pawn Stars in 2009, it was during a bad economy. People are going to their attics, their garages to dig out stuff. And yes, it does happen. We did a show with a guy where he found a $3 picture at a five and dime store. It turned out to be the second ever picture unknown of Billy the Kid sold for, I think, north of $5 million. So it does happen. Alexis, I want to come back to you in just a minute. But, Brent, I want you to show us a couple of the things you brought that are highly prized. Why don't you start with the Beatles record, that single? So this is Love Me Do, uh, which Paul McCartney said was the song that really took the Beatles from uh, starting to do well to going over the top. And, and of course, their monumental um, uh, Ed Sullivan show not long after that. And that one, th this record here goes for about $32,000. $32,000. And that is a single. That's called, for my son, that's called a 45, right? Well, for your... For is, our, it, is it really? It, I th <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a 45. And for our daughters and some of our sons, I think you see now with Taylor Swift, which her stuff's moving about double of what it was last year, Fewer records are being produced, uh, physical, fewer CDs. And so the, the actual value of these, getting them signed, is more than, than it would have been historically. So show us the Mickey Mantle. That's L-E, not E-L, like the name of your, your new platform, but L-E, Mickey Mantle card. What's that one? Yeah, we named, we named the platform Mantle, like where you put your favorite yeah. stuff, right? Um, the fact that uh, maybe uh, subconsciously it was an ode to uh, Mickey Mantle as well. So this is probably the most famous sports card there is. And it's funny why it's so valuable. He, you know the story, Dan? No, I'm just <laughs> nodding because I'm enjoying it. It's yeah. amazing. Uh, basically, uh, Tops, which produced this card, decided that their next, uh, their next run was going to be more valuable. So they dumped thousands of sets of, of 1952 Tops into the ocean to make room in their warehouse. So the limited scarcity is what drove the value of this specific card. Oh, Alexis, really quickly, you invest in private companies. You've obviously been collecting a, a lot of these really cool things. What is it about um, investing that you've learned that's kind of drawn you to this market? 
You know, I'm an early stage investor and I've been very fortunate to have been, you know, one of the first checks in companies like Coinbase, Instacart, Row, amazing companies. And I think the one skill I have in life is identifying opportunities early, usually about 10 years before the rest of the world does, obviously creating Reddit. Um, but even in this, and, and what we saw during COVID was obviously a big explosion of people finding this sort of tapping into this nostalgia again. But I'll tell you, look, some of this is in, in a way financial. I, I do now have for sure the largest collection of Serena Williams rookie cards because, you know, <laughs> six years ago, I get back into the hobby and I realized, well, if I'm married to Picasso, I want to make sure all of our, you know, great grandkids get to have the full collection. So like this is a very valuable card. This is probably definitely her most valuable card. Um, but I also have like the first video game I ever bought and it's a sealed copy. No one in the world would want this game other than me because it reminds me of a whole world that opened up to me thanks to video games, which got me into programming, which got me into Reddit and, and everything else. And so this can mean different things to different people. It can be purely sentimental. Uh, it can be, you know, a, a long-term investment that you'll never sell. Um, but, but what's so fun is I think for a whole generation of us, we get to tap back into something from our youth that, uh, just brings us joy, uh, like any other piece of culture or art would. It's people love collectibles. They just love them. Right. Well, t it takes you back to, you were at a game with your father, you know, you went to a, a, a concert with your mom and to yeah. be able to have the ticket stub or, or yeah. something that was signed it's at so that cool. event, it's. It's just so much different That'll than a typical are. investor. Brent, thank you very much. Alexis, thank you. More Fast in Two. All right, let's get one more check on the uh, new movers in the Dow indexes or moves into the Dow. Amazon is set to replace Walgreens in the industrial average. The change prompted by Walmart's decision to split three to one announced late last month. That reduced the retail giant's weight in the index, and Walmart will remain in the Dow, by the way. The change will go into effect one week from today on February 26th. That's Amazon in Walgreens boots booted mm. up next. Your final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn in 25 seconds or less. Stu, what do you say? Uh, we like S&P 500 equal weight. You know, four Q earnings showed solid earnings that are also broadening out. So we are going to stay with that team. Dan, what do you say? FXI. FXI. Big guy. Stud. You. Coca-Cola. KO. KO. Thanks for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cranor starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.